Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Joseph Cannon, whose latest novel is The Defectors. This is the eighth novel. Other novels include the first, Los Alamos, Prodigal Spy, The Good German, Alibi, Leaving Berlin, Istanbul Passage, and Stardust. Joseph Cannon writes in the spy tradition of Alan First, Eric Ambler, John Le Carre. Before we went on the air, we were talking a little about Alan First. I mentioned that while First writes about the period in Europe just before World War II, you write about the period in Europe just after World War II and with Alan First, he could kind of just pick any country and he'd find a civil war. In your case, you could kind of pick any country and find spy goings on in the beginnings of the Cold War. And then I found out that you were his editor back on books like Night Soldiers. When Alan First wrote, did you have any idea who he was? Oh, sure. As an editor, I inherited him. He was originally working with somebody else who retired. And I still love those books. I think his Balkan books in the beginning, Night Soldiers, Dark Star, these are terrific. I mean, I like the others as well, but they're special to me because I was involved with them. He's terrific. I'm a big fan. Well, when you were an editor, uh, were you more than acquisitions? Were you going over page by page line editing? Oh, sure. I mean, in the beginning, of course, you do a lot more of that because in the fullness of time, you get promoted and you become management. You spend most of your time in meetings and doing personnel work and the budget. But I always kept a hand in. I was a line editor. I think it's important if you're dealing with writers that they have a feeling that you're involved in the manuscript and not just in the marketing decisions. So it was fun. This was, of course, a long time ago. I left publishing 20 years ago to write these books. There's a a connection here because as you're line editing spy novels, particularly really good spy novels, you're also picking things up along the way. And you're commenting and figuring out how to do things. So if Alan gets things a little wrong, you can figure out how to fix it. Well, I wouldn't go so far as that because I don't want him to hear on the radio that he gets anything wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know what you're getting at, that there's a kind of skill set that you pick up, but I I don't think so. I think it's a question of everything you read. You know, people will say, oh, what influenced you? And, you know, everything influences you. I mean, when you sit down in front of a blank piece of paper, you're bringing your entire life experience to it. Just, you know, things like selecting the word is almost an autobiographical act. It's you selecting it, and you're the one who's looking for whatever nuance or shade is in there. Alan was easy to work with in the sense that he delivered complete manuscripts. I mean, he didn't need a lot of massaging and line editing. So that was a delight because you work less as the editor. And we've stayed in touch. I mean, I've you know, from time to time, we'll still see him. Was your interest in spy novels and that sort of thriller, was that there at the time? 
I mean, your own private interests? Oh, I think always, you know. I mean, it, it was always a genre that I enjoyed reading. Um, at the peak, you find somebody like Graham Greene. I think that's the aspirational figure. If somebody said, you know, what sort of books would you like to be writing, I would say in the manner of Graham Greene. I think he's not just entertaining and suspenseful and all of those other things that we go to this genre for, but he's a seriously good writer. And I think, particularly if you've been in the business, as I have, it matters what happens on the page. I, I find it difficult to read a book that is strictly there for plot. I want something interesting in the prose. I want to see the writer working at something on the page. And, of course, you know, when you read Green, it's just, it's just wonderful. Well, I didn't mention Green before, but I did mention Ambler. And yes. I, I assume you'd read Ambler as well. All of them. And Le Carre, who's, you know, everyone is in one way or another compared to John Le Carre. And I think that's fair because, in a sense, he invented the modern espionage story. He made it about bureaucracies, and he made it about that gray area where most spies really inhabit. It wasn't just shoot 'em ups and people in trench coats. He was talking about, you know, the personnel department and people stealing files and all the stuff that really happens, and he made it exciting. Well, one thing I would look at, and I noticed in uh, Defectors and in your other books, it's there as well. Alan First Focus is always atmosphere. You feel like you've jumped in. At the same time, someone like Eric Ambler focuses on, say, the plot, so you always know you're trying to turn the page. What it seems you're trying to do is kind of combine those two, put us there, and at the same time keep things moving. Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, most of the books, most of my books really begin with place. I become fascinated by, let's say, Istanbul after the war. I the way that book happened is that I went there as a tourist, fell in love with it, which is not unusual. Everybody does. It's a great city. And I noticed that in the guidebooks, they all sort of stopped with Ataturk. And I thought, well, what happened after? And what happened during the war, which is the period that always interests me? So I looked into it. And what I discovered was that it had been one of the great listening posts throughout the war, filled with spies. And I came across a passage in a book describing a typical evening at the Park Hotel where literally everybody in the room was a spy for one agency or another, including the bartender. And I thought, my word, this is the real-life Casablanca. This is, you know, where it was really happening. So it, for me, it was irresistible as a site. Before we get on to defectors, in that particular book, Istanbul Passage, how many times did you go to Istanbul, and how were you able to find out what had been happening 60 years earlier? Well, first, you read everything you can. I mean, this this is the similar process that I used with defectors. I first research. You read everything you can get your hands on about the time. Yes, I go there. I mean, Istanbul, I think I was there four or five times, um, which was always a pleasure, and I would use it. The excuse was I was doing research, but in fact, it was often just an excuse to go. The research is what I called um, location scouting for the movie that's going on in your head. I think it's important to know where the characters live. I mean, specifically, where is the apartment building? Can they walk to work? Do they take a tram? Where are the restaurants that people were going to? I think all these things, if you don't have that physical grounding, and they don't have to appear in the book. It's just I think that the writer has to know it so that it's real to him. But if you don't have that physical grounding, the characters are living in a vacuum, and they don't 
fully become alive. And I think, you know, the only thing that truly matters in the end in books is characters. When you think of some classics that people will throw at you as exemplars, uh, nobody remembers the plot except maybe Moby Dick. You know, <laughs> they remember the people. For a book like Alibi, for instance, that makes it almost a little bit easier because Venice doesn't change. Well, you know, ironically enough, <laughs> when you write about Los Alamos or post-war Berlin, as I did twice, you can give yourself a little bit of latitude because it was all destroyed and had to be rebuilt. The difficulty with the Venice book is that you could not make any mistake at all because the whole point of the city is that it is exactly the way it would have been in 1945. And if you turn left at a canal and you go into the water and every then you get you know emails saying any fool knows <laughs> this. So, so in the, in a crazy way, it actually became more difficult. Joseph Cannon, let's move on for the moment to defectors. And this takes place a little bit after your other books. It takes place in 1961. What brought you to the notion of writing about the height of the Cold War rather than the beginning? This concerns American and British communist spies who threatened with exposure, fled their respective countries, and ended up as defectors living in Moscow. I was fascinated by that twilight world that they were all living, but I wanted to set it at a time when the spies who were the generation of the 30s, the ones who were recruited for ideological reasons, they weren't being blackmailed, they weren't being paid. They did it because they believed in communism as if it were a faith and that any kind of action to support it uh, was somehow justified in their minds. And now here they are in Moscow, and I wanted to set it at a period, at a year, 1961, that to me is like the high summer of the Soviet experiment when it was possible for these people to still believe that they were on the right side of history, that even though they come from the West with all of its material advantages and Moscow in 1961 is not a particularly lavish place to live, you could still have a belief in the future. You had chosen the right side. Ten years after this or 15 years after this, it would have been Im impossible to think that because the country was falling apart. The idea actually began with something that happened in my life. It was There was truly an autobiographical moment, or it happened to a friend. Many years ago, I was working in London as a kid, and one of my co-workers and sort of a mentor, somebody I came to like very much, was a man who, it happened, had a brother who was, in fact, one of these defectors. And it was a national scandal at the time. It upended their family. Uh, everybody's career was thrown into question. It was, you know, disgrace. The whole thing was really difficult for everybody to deal with. And knowing this, I was fascinated, of course, but you couldn't ever talk about it in the office. Nobody ever said a word. It would be considered the height of rudeness to bring this up. And fair enough, if this man whose career had been deep six by this wanted to turn the page and move on, you should have the good grace to turn the page with him. And then a few years later, I was back in New York. He was they were on a business trip. We had lunch. And out of the blue, I had just said, how are you and how are things? He said, I've been to Moscow to see my brother. And this was the first time in 20-some years. And I, it was like talking somebody in from a ledge. I didn't, I didn't want him to stop. You know, I wanted to. Uh, so I just said something innocuous like, how was that? How did it go? And he just talked and talked and talked. And so all of the things that we had never been able to talk about before, 
I was not then a writer. I was still a publisher. But I was struck by the idea, and I think I just put it in one of those file drawers that you keep in your head to pull out someday. And this is the occasion when it comes out. And I think the reason that it intrigued me and has done for years is that I never thought of them, these people, both Brits and Americans, as having an after story at all. We don't know about them. There were a fair number of them who did this, who went to Moscow, and we have no idea what their lives were like. And in this case, I thought, here's my friend's brother and someone he thought he knew everything about except maybe the one thing that truly was important. And I think for most of us, the stories go that there's going to be the threat of exposure. Uh, somebody tips you off, they make a call, and they say they're getting closer. Um, they know about you, get out. And if you're smart and lucky, you do flee. Maybe there's a chase, and then they get on a plane or a boat, and they vanish. It's the last you hear about them. And I thought, but they didn't vanish. You know, Kim Philby, who is by far the most famous of all of the defectors, lived in Moscow for 25 years and many of the others for nearly as long. I thought, how was that? What did they do day to day? What kind of life was it? And that's really how the book started. And you knew at some point you would come to it, and this just happened to be the time? Yeah. I thought, it's time to really find all of this out. I mean, my friend is now dead. You know, I wouldn't have done such a book while he was alive because he would have thought that somehow it was a monoclay about him, which it isn't. And I deliberately said it, before Philby's defection so that it would not be presumed to be a Romana Clay about Philby. And our protagonist, if not hero, uh, is an American. So I suppose it would, in shorthand terms, it would be fair enough to say if there had been an American Philby, he would have been like this. But it's not meant to be Kim. The basic setup is that a publisher who used to be a spy finds out that his brother, who was the defector, is in Moscow, has written a manuscript detailing whatever MacGuffin details. Right. <laughs> it's his life, but probably redacted a bit. Well, if you're getting permission from the KGB, you can easily imagine that it's filled with mischief and misinformation, and why else would they let him do it? You know, it's clearly to have some propaganda point. And it's the brother who is now the publisher, and he's been invited over to Moscow to finish the manuscript with the defector. And he resents the whole thing. He's leery of it. He hasn't seen him in 12 years. His whole life had been, as with my friend, turned upside down. He thought he would never see him again as long as he lived. He thinks he's being used. Um, he doesn't want to be a tool for the KGB. How can the defector really tell the truth? You know, it's going to be very much, oh, what a clever little boy was I to fool everybody. But among the people he was fooling was the brother. So there's a kind of deep-seated resentment. On the other hand, it's his brother. It's his blood. And they were very close as children. This may be the one chance he gets to see him and maybe the chance to say, why did you do it? How could you do it? Well, then we have that moment, which is when the brother, who is still a member of the KGB, says, I want to go home. And that kicks everything in. Once you realize that you had that little kicker, yeah. once you realize that and you had the story, obviously, on some level, the characters and story will start to write themselves. That means that you have to go to Moscow, you have to do the research, and you have to figure out 
what life was actually like in 1961 Moscow. Yes. And this was in some ways the most interesting part of the whole process. I, I like going to the places where I set the books, and Moscow in particular was interesting. But one of the things you have to do, the Moscow today, 2017, is a very different city from 1961. There are, you know, physically you can still see a lot of what the defectors would have seen. But I wanted to experience it the way they did. And I discovered that one of the things you had to do was almost mentally draw a a gray scrim over what you were looking at because it was all much more of a black and white rather than colored existence. You know, for instance, if you go, one of the things that um, tourists always comment on is the traffic. It's just a roaring, thunderous traffic because Stalin built these huge boulevards for tanks and now the, you know, the cars just never stop. Pedestrians go underneath in these passageways so that there aren't even red lights to cool it down. But in 1961, if you're reading journalistic accounts or people who had been their travel writers' memoirs, what everyone comments on is that there are no cars in the street. The only people who had cars were high Politburo members. And from photographs that I saw, their trucks were even thin on the ground. I remember 1969. Now, granted, it was dead of winter. <laughs> it was a really cheap trip. I was a college student, but I remember certain things about it. And I remember there were no cars on the street. Everything was dead. And quiet. I mean, for a Western, which, of course, you then use in the book, because if you're flying in as an American who's perhaps come to see his brother, but he's also experiencing Moscow for the first time, and one of the things that he would notice is that the city, the center city, is quiet, unlike New York or Chicago or San Francisco, you know. Consequently, you don't just pick out locations that they would have known. You really have to get some almost a sensory sense of the city that they were seeing. Um, it's tricky. You're going back in time. It's a kind of literary archaeology, you know. But in order to make my defectors plausible, I wanted to keep their status or the way they were living as close as possible to that of the real defectors. And I had read enough about them that I had addresses and anecdotes and various things. So I went and tracked them down. And you often use these sites. Uh, for instance, where our defector lives is literally around the corner from where Kim Philby lived. I thought it was important that we do this because in a society as hierarchical and top-down as the Soviet Union was, your housing assignment was a great marker of your status. It's how valuable were you to the party. So where, where, what apartment would they assign you? And if it was some studio way out in the outer ring that had been built by Khrushchev in sort of a shoddy way, you were nobody. But if you were given one of the great, gracious 19th century apartments in the inner city, you were considered someone worth a perk. And I thought this was important to know. Another character in the book lives in the same building that Guy Burgess lived in, one of the famous British defectors. Who makes a little cameo. <laughs> who makes a little cameo and who lives conveniently enough right across the street from a site that I thought would make an ideal murder spot, so it does. I tracked down the restaurants. The Aragvi is gone, but the Hotel Dresden, where it was, still exists, and so you can get a sense of the layout. And after you've gone to your third Georgian restaurant, you really have been to all. It's like the IHOPs of restaurants. They're all the same. So that was easier to do. And things like the bar at the Metropole Hotel and various watering holes that would have appealed to people in 61 are still very much around. 
One of the surprising things I discovered in doing this research is that I thought, well, what do they do at night? What do they like to do? And Philby and a few of the others were particularly fond of the Bolshoi. They liked to go to the ballet. And tickets then were just as hard to get as they are now, and so they would be arranged through the KGB. In the book, I referred to it as the KGB concierge service. You know, I mean, they're <laughs> providing theater tickets to these people. What this did for me was brought back those teenage days. And in my brain, I was remembering the Moscow only a few years later, very similar to the Moscow of this book, uh, the Beryoshkas, the store that I was able to go into because I had American dollars. Right. And that was there. I remember walking down the street of new, brand new buildings not far from Red Square, and everything was quiet, abandoned. The food, vodka, champagne, and caviar flowed, which you kind of hint at there. But not much else. And I remember in the hotel room there was a radio that you couldn't click off, but you could pull out the plug. <laughs> <laughs> You know, an example, because the stodgy old in-tourist hotel on what was then Gorky Street is now a Ritz and is now marble-floored, and what you see are all of those glitzy symbols of the kleptocracy that the current society seems to be. You know, there are very young, blonde ladies in heels that are about eight inches high, and half the men in the lobby seem to have earbuds that I don't know who they're guarding, but they all seem to be bodyguards. And then you go up to the rooftop, and there's a bar with Kremlin views, which is lit now at night. I mean, in 1961, this would have been inconceivable. That that kind of um, Western, let's call it decadence, or at least glamour, was simply unheard of. You wouldn't have it. Well, I remember we stayed at the Hotel Ukraina, the Ukraine oh, Hotel. Yeah, sure. That's still there. It's still there. It was uh, Stalinist modern. thing I remember is that it was kind of this big building sitting in the middle of nowhere across the river. They're called Stalin's Sisters, and they're all these uh, Rococo Gothic wedding cake-style buildings, and he built them right after World War II under the assumption that since they had won the war, um, Moscow deserved buildings as grand and as tall as existed in the West. But they were very much to his taste, and consequently they're now the, you know, the remarkable feature of the landscape, but no one would call them architecturally meritorious. <laughs> you know, they're really sort of terrible buildings. But now you get fond of them because they represent a sort of time in the past when they were aspirational. Well, when you were doing your research, um, you found people who lived during that era and you talked to them about what it was like? No, rarely. First of all, I don't have Russian. This has been true of all the books. I really rely on print and photographs and maps and things like that. Um, I find that when you do talk to somebody who had been through whatever it is that you're writing about, there's an authenticity that's, you know, what can you say? This is how he remembers it. But we don't always remember accurately, and we don't always remember the same thing. I discovered after Los Alamos, for instance, that I, in fact, knew someone who knew one of the scientists there and was still alive, and that I could well have interviewed him. I would have had an in. And in the end, I was just glad I didn't. I thought, because then the whole book would be what he's telling me it was like. How can I say that it wasn't? But in fact, you get other people's views. I think the most valuable thing of all is to read 
letters or diaries or journalism that's written at the time because the assumptions people are making are often very interesting. There are sequences that take place in the dacha outside, right outside Moscow. Did you go there? Did you look? Yeah, I did. You know, one of the things about the KGB, even more so then than now, is that it was almost a state within a state. And because these people were field agents who had been brought home, so to speak, they were initially welcomed as heroes and, you know, they were afforded the privileges that you would get from the KGB. Those stores that you mentioned where you could buy better food, there was even their own hospital, and the dachas were often given out to people. And there's a wonderful photograph which prompted a scene in the book that you may remember. There's a big luncheon party. Right. And I came across this picture of a lunch on the lawn at the dacha, and they all look so ordinary. And there was even, I think, a child dangling on one knee, and uh, George Blake was there, and Philby, and various spies. And as you look at it, you think, well, this is like a thousand picnic photographs that you've seen. It's so ordinary. And then you say, but wait a minute. It's not ordinary. Every single person at this table was a spy for a long time. I mean, they spent 24-7 lying and pretending to be someone else, even sometimes to their spouses. Uh, you know, once you've been doing it, that it's a very peculiar crime espionage. It's not like, say, a robbery, which has the frame of an event, you know. But if you're a spy, you are constantly line it be, until it becomes your second nature and part of your DNA. And as I looked at the picture, which is another sort of pivotal moment in how the book came together, I thought, well, here they all are, and they're increasingly isolated, and they only have each other to fall back on, and betrayal is in their blood. They can't trust anybody. They can't help themselves. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's one of the interesting aspects of that particular scene is as it's going on, you realize that each one of those people, even the wives compared to the husbands, each one of them could be talking to the KGB. And some definitely were. So, yes, absolutely. For the actual spies, as opposed to the families, sometimes the pressure was such that they would crack. I mean, it's not easy to be somebody else all the time. But for some of them, it was part of the thrill of the job. It was almost a kind of performance art. And I think that the spies who were, like Philby and like some of the others, um, essentially amoral, what really got them off was being able to sit at a meeting or sit at a table and think, nobody knows. I'm the only one who really knows what's going on here. There was a kind of arrogance about them. See how clever I am. Nobody's on to me. Nobody has the slightest idea that I'm betraying them and lying to them all the time. I think that's uh, an inherently rich dramatic subject. I just kept drawn to it. Did you have any problem when you were writing the book in figuring out exactly when Simon, our American hero and on some level patsy, as he tries to figure it out, do you have any trouble trying to figure out, okay, at what point is he going to figure it out? I already know this, but he has to figure it out at a certain point. Was that a difficulty? We go back to that famous luncheon scene. I mean, I like scenes that essentially you have to choreograph. 
you know, that there are four or five things going on at the same time so that it isn't just blatantly about this. But in the same way that when I was looking at the photograph of that and had a kind of revelation about what these people were truly like, I, I used that lunch for him. I thought this will be the moment when he begins to understand what Frank, his brother, is really capable of, and not just what he could do, but what he's going to do. And it's at this point that Simon realizes that he has to do something. He can't just sit back and watch these events unfold. They're going to involve other lives. People might get seriously injured and killed because there are things we don't want to talk about that are plot, but it'll happen. And it's at that moment that I think the real crux of the book happens. For me, there's always some line that you come across as you're writing, and then it just sums it up, and you realize it's been there all along. And for me, it's that when the boys were boys, children, their father, who was a high-minded Bostonian, used to play a kind of dinner game with them at dinner where he would set up an ethical quandary, a real puzzle, and he'd say, so what's the right thing? And then as they were puzzling this out, he'd say, now, what is the right thing to do? because the two are not really the same. The one is some abstraction, and the other is going to involve the messiness of other people. So that the actions that you take, you have to think what the effects are going to be. Frank, for instance, did what he thought was the right thing to do, and it blew his life up and blew up the lives of everybody around him. What should you do? And it becomes Simon's great dilemma. How, how am I going to cope with this now that I know what he's up to? As the author and writing this, you know there's also a point, and it's going to happen in all of your books, where the passive protagonist must become active. Yeah, or otherwise you don't really have a story, do you? I mean, I don't outline, and I don't know that you have a general sense of the final end, uh, particularly if there's been a murder and you know you have to know who did it. But I tend to make these up as I go along. It has to unfold for me in some interesting way. I think if you're, I know every writer is different, and some people rely heavily on outlines. But to me, that would be like painting by the numbers. You know, it become essentially tedious after a while. I like to be surprised. I like to see where these books are going and where the characters are going to take me. Having said that, I don't mean to suggest that this is, you know, magical thinking, um, I think people who say, oh, the characters just took over. No, they didn't. You're doing it. You know, you're, you're making them take over. Joseph Cannon, they take a trip toward the end of the book to Leningrad and points north. Did you do that trip yourself? Yes. I didn't use that train, which is the historical train. And you can still do it. It's the overnight train. And, but there are tons of pictures, so I knew what it looked like. And also, while I was there, I had never been, and I wanted to go to the Hermitage and to all those things that people traditionally go to, and rightly so, they're worth doing. Also, I wanted to get a sense, too, of how the cities were different and how they feel differently. One of the things that I noticed from there was that Leningrad was a beautiful city that had everything going for it. It had the museums, it had the tours, yet because... The Soviet Union, in 1969 at least, was, and I would assume 61, was so Moscow-centric. Of the 13 or so days that we spent, or whatever it was, I don't remember the full total, 10 of them were in Moscow and then only like two in Leningrad because 
Moscow's the center of the world. Well, for those of us on the tour, we wanted to see Leningrad. Yeah, which certainly has more for tourists. You know, right. and but this is also a reflection of the kind of self-absorption of Moscovites. You know, the one thing about Moscow that makes it an exciting city even today is that it is like certain other cities in the world in that when you are there, you feel you're at the center of the world, um, or you would if you were Russian. I mean, there's a very strong feeling there in the middle of... And Red Square, I think, astonishes every tourist just by how vast it is. It's one of the great urban public spaces in, in the world. But when you stand there, if you are Russian, you could truly feel... I am now at the center, and the rest of the world revolves around me. In that way that sometimes you get that feeling in London, when the, you know, the, the imperial notion. It tends to make it a more dynamic city, even now. I mean, there's a lot of bustle. There's a lot of stuff going on, whereas St. Petersburg is a real faded beauty. It's almost melancholy, this city. It's, it's lost its point. It's not the capital anymore, and so there are these very grand buildings that were set up for bureaucracies that don't really exist there. I found it all, I guess melancholy is the best word to describe it, fascinating from the point of view of art and architecture, and they now have restaurants, and so if you're a tourist, it's great. But Moscow is the real heart of Russia. Joseph Cannon, I'm going to ask you a couple of other questions. Had you always planned on writing even during the days when you were an editor? No, I never did. I didn't have manuscripts secretly in drawers, you know, and I wasn't trying to get out of my day job. I liked publishing. I'd been in it since I was a student at university. I became a reader for a magazine. I was out in the Southwest hiking as a tourist because I love that part of the country. I think it's just sublime landscape. And my wife and I found ourselves in Santa Fe. And I'd always been interested in World War II, and I say, gee, Los Alamos is only 30 miles away or 40 miles away. I'd love to go and see it. And I was fascinated by the place because it seemed to me this Aussie and Harriet kind of all-American town, but think what they had been doing there. And then during the war, it didn't technically exist. It was the most secret place on Earth, and I toyed with that for a while. And then there's that second where the light bulb goes over your head. And I thought, really, a city that doesn't exist, and what would have happened if there had been a crime? How would they go about solving it on this place that isn't technically there? You can't have the police up. And I thought, well, this is an interesting premise for a book. And because I was still in publishing, I thought, who can I give it to? Who's looking for an idea? But nobody was. It happened. And also, people should have their own ideas because you bring more passion to it. And it was the summer of 95, so it was 50th anniversary of Hiroshima, and there was a lot of stuff in the press about the Manhattan Project. And in a head-scratching way, I thought, you know, it's somehow it's being presented with all the nuclear baggage that we bring to it as kids who survived those, that era of tests and drills, etc., but it's not really accurate about what the project itself was like insofar as I knew about it, having done some research and read up on it. The average age of the scientists on the project was 27, and Oppenheimer himself was just turning 40. These were kids. And I thought this was the Silicon Valley of the 40s, and they weren't Dr. Strangeloves who had gone to the desert to plot the end of the world. These were kids who were, they were going to win the war and they were going to do this extraordinary feat of science. And I thought, you know, had I been approached, then I probably would have agreed to do it. And that was the start of your writing career. 
Joseph Cannon, The Good German became a film. Were you on the set? I visited. I mean, it had nothing to do with the making of the movie, and I wouldn't suggest otherwise. But I was there, oh, maybe three days, so that I did get to meet everybody. And I can tell you, George really is as wonderful and nice as he seems to be. He was just terrific, and as, as they all were. And the experience was great because it was like watching maybe a basketball team who were at the top of their game. The sheer level of professionalism on a Hollywood set is, is just dazzling. I mean, you know, and everyone is responsible for his or her own universe. It's, you know, the makeup person who's making sure there isn't any glare, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I know we've seen this over the years, but to see it up close is to be impressed all over again. These people are really pros. Did you do a cameo? No, but my son... <laughs> he is actually in there's a nightclub scene and I don't think we see his face but he's he's there about, at sitting <laughs> at one of the tables uh, has there been interest in any of the other novels oh yeah when I say that these are movies in my head I really do think of them as films right. several of them have been optioned over the years and I mean, they are either in development or whatever catchphrase we want to use. But <laughs> but it, until it actually happens, you know, it doesn't happen. But I think they should all be movies. Why not? Have you ever thought about turning any of them into screenplays? Yes, I have. But, you know, in a way, one of the great things about writing is that you are the director and the writer and the cinematographer and the actors you have full control. It's just you and this piece of paper, and it's, you know, you're in charge. Movies are a really collaborative effort, and often the writer is the least important part of it. So I thought, you know, you can spend a lot of time working on a screenplay, going to meetings. You could waste a lot of time doing this, and frankly, to get it done, I think really you have to be asked. I think there has to be a director who says, I, I want you on this. Has Defectors been optioned yet? It is. Even as we speak, they are talking about this. So I'd, why don't I say a qualified yes? Because <laughs> frankly, I mean, apparently there are two people interested and that nothing could be better you know, than having two. I hope so. When you're writing historical novels, you get stuff wrong and people tell you you get stuff wrong. Is there anything from any of your books which you just like spent days just going, oh, damn, either because you got something wrong or because there was a piece of serendipity that would have made the novel so much better? Well, here's what I got wrong. I mean, yes, that's a great question because people love to catch you out. And now that there's email... It's not a question anymore of somebody writing care of the publisher and then things disappearing. They really can track you down, and so you, you get the complaints. And I find somehow that, that thriller readers are particularly adept at this. I have a theory about this, which is that the more we've come to accept spin in our public life, we're demanding authenticity in our fiction. It's a real, you know, it's an irony there. When I wrote The Good German, one of the things that I did was very dutifully take notes. There's a museum of the Allies in Berlin, and they have uniforms and various artifacts that soldiers would have had then. And I dutifully took note of what kind of gun most of the occupation forces would have had. Handgun. But what I forgot was whether it was a slingback or a cylinder, you know, the two kinds of guns. So I got it wrong. And luckily, 
there was a copy editor who picked it up and said, no, no, no. And, and in fact, even to this day, I can't remember which was the accurate one, but one of the two. And I said, oh, great. I'm so glad you caught that. Um, let's change it. And she did. It's just that we didn't make the changes in the set of proofs that went to the UK for the UK and Commonwealth edition. So I started getting all of these emails from Australia that would begin, any bloody fool knows that this gun was, you know, yeah, da, 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 da. And I thought, gun people are really serious about this stuff. So from that point on, I decided I would just push people out of windows and <laughs> not risk <laughs> making a mistake. <laughs> what about something that you found out later that would have just like anything? Not that spring to mind. I mean, okay. you know, one of the things that you always wish you could do them over because, I mean, I don't sit there and reread books that I wrote 15 years ago, but every once in a while you'll be called upon to, there'll be some quote and you have to look at it, and you think, oh, I wish, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have another shot at this? You, you want it to be better. A lot of writers in writing historical fiction get kind of weirded out because they see parallels with what's going on today. From my perspective, what's going on in this country today is like nothing I could have imagined or seen in a novel. I can't imagine anybody putting a Trump in a novel in the White House. But as you were writing The Defectors, did you get any deja vu-ish feeling or did the eras feel so distant that it felt like you were talking about Roman times? I got the feeling after I'd finished it. When I was writing this, I thought the Cold War was over, you know, and uh, the KGB was up to other things, and they still existed, although with different initials, but it wasn't remotely going to be like the world described in this book. And then what a surprise to discover that, you know, the Cold War was not over, and there they were making mischief everywhere. My publisher at one point said, oh, this book is so relevant. And I said, well, you know, it wasn't when I started. I, <laughs> I, I intended it to be a sort of period piece. But I think the KGB sense of itself is something that comes through very strongly in, in the novel and is now very much part of our day-to-day -day world. I didn't anticipate that. You know, I thought I was, I've also been asked, thriller writers, you know, where does it go after the Cold War? This was when everybody assumed that that was a done piece of history, which it turns out it is not. And I thought, well, it's a really interesting question because what part of the world is going to be the... St I mean, clearly, the story of the 21st century is China, and it's going to be the story that most involves us, and it would behoove us to engage, even in terms of thinking about it in fictional terms. You know, it's a great subject. But in fact, here we are back again. I... The, the Cold War, in a way, has it's like a whack-a-mole. It's sort of popped up again, and I think partly because the Russians insist. They really want to have it as 1961 again when there are these two worthy adversaries. They want to be the other big guy in the playground. And, you know, I read somewhere recently in an economics magazine that the GNP is now less than that of Italy's. We're talking about a very diminished superpower, but not in Putin's mind. He wants to be a superpower. So I think we're back with the KGB for a while, and you know and they're then, all over. And then, of course, at our end, we have a clown car. 
well, there you are. <laughs> what can I say <laughs> that hasn't already been said? But it's a disgrace and a dangerous one. Every day it goes on in some weird, unexpected way. It's like time speeds up and yet at the same time slows down. And I keep thinking that I've walked into some novel, maybe written by Tom Wolfe, I'm not sure, but it doesn't feel like we live in reality anymore. Does that make sense? Yes, and ironically enough, what I think we are living in is a speeded-up news cycle. And that that should convey this feeling of unreality is, is doubly interesting to me. I find that I'm watching television a lot more than I did a year ago. And we seem to live from breaking news to breaking news. And every day there's a breaking news story. I think there's an exhaustion factor built into that that we have to be very leery of and try to keep some perspective on this. But the more you are involved from either side, by the way, I mean, I'm saying that on all ends of the political spectrum, everybody is now um, in high gear. Uh, it turns out people are now saying this is not going to be another golden era of investigative journalism, and I hope they're right. I mean, maybe it's true. But part of the price you pay for that is that you don't have a lot of moments of reflection now. I mean, we're, and particularly with social media, you open up your phone and there's breaking news. You know, it's like <laughs> every 45 minutes you kind of check in. That ultimately is wearying. You know, we, we can't really live from headline to headline. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It also means for the writer that going back into the past almost becomes pleasurable. Pleasurable and, in fact, I think dramatically effective. You know, one of the things about this all-purpose surveillance that we now know we live with, that everybody potentially lives with, there's a funny thing when you can know everything, what's the value of knowing it? I mean, how do you treat this in fiction? How do you do it in a movie? It's somebody in front of a screen. It's somebody punching buttons. It is so much more dramatically effective to have somebody meet on a park bench you know, and say four words to each other or leave a newspaper, which is a scene we've seen a million times in Spy Knockers. But in fact, I think that this retro aspect of espionage of human intel is going to come back because when we can listen to everything, you constantly need to get away. So I think we're going to go back to the sort of Cold War stuff that we are fond of in these books. And not a bad thing for me, of course, since it's what I write about. Well, as yeah, you're right. As social media and as our phones get tapped everywhere, the only time to have privacy is on a park bench. Yeah, take a walk. Joseph Cannon, Defectors is out. Are you working on another one? I'm doing the research. I mean, I find when you're actively publishing the book, it's very difficult to write at the same time because, A, you're busy and traveling around and et cetera. But, yes, I am researching it, and timetable, I would assume, is another year and a half maybe. Can you give a place and time? Well, I don't know. I'm always afraid of talking it out, but I think that at least for part of the book, we will return to Germany, which for me is uh, a magnet place in terms of interest. I, I, I find that you're never done with Berlin. There's just always more to discover about it. And I think we'll spend a little time in Berlin again. Do we have a year? Roughly, 
height of the Cold War again. You know, if I keep going this way, I will eventually work my way up to writing a contemporary book because <laughs> I've gone from 45 and now we're at 61. But it would be roughly the early 60s. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>